hear the good news. Our God is long-suffering, and his patience towards his people is enduring. Jesus teaches us that if someone were to sin against us, then we should forgive, even up to 77 times. How much more does our God forgive us in his holiness and mercy? This is a window into the character of Jesus and of our God. He is a forgiving Savior that sheds his blood for sinners. And though we sin, God forgives repentant sinners because Jesus' sacrifice for sins is effectual. His blood does not have an expiration date or a limit on how many times you can use it. No, his blood is entirely effectual for all of your sins. And God, in his patience and grace, receives us each week into his presence to offer you this forgiveness. Week after week after week, he forgives. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the words of our Lord. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and he was, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household and I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. 
We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate has mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. I'll ask you to turn uh, to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 119. Verses 73 through 80. Psalm 119. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you call us into your holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that through baptism we are united to him. We are your people in Christ. We pray that in your presence today, you might teach us by your word, speak to us, convict us where we need convicting, encourage us where we need encouraging, and help us to be honest with what you say. We ask that you'd bless our time together now in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, I mean 6, No one can serve 
two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Goes on to say, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He also says, if I can find it, in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, Here it is. Ah, I can't find it. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, My son, listen to the commandments of your mother and hold to the, of your father, excuse me, and hold to the teaching of your mother. It's easy to get wrapped up in all kinds of things and to put the most important issues on the side. Of course, we have to work, we have to earn money, we have to live. We have lots of things we have to do. But Jesus says, look, you cannot serve God and money. You're going to hold to the one and despise the other, or you're going to hate the one and love the other. Instead, he goes on to describe how God takes care of the birds, he feeds them, and how he clothes the lilies of the field, how beautiful they are. And then he says to his disciples, okay, don't worry about these things. Your father knows what you need, but here's what you do need to do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do we believe that? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ was inaugurated on the cross with a sign over his head, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Under his feet was a skull-like dome. He was crushing the head of the serpent. He's gaining the victory. On his head was a crown of thorns, a symbol of the curse that he was defeating. The kingdom began at the cross. He tells us in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, as the little children were brought to him and the disciples were trying to shoo them away, no, let the little children come unto me because such belong to the kingdom of heaven. Such as these belong to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so putting two and two together, seek first his kingdom 
one of the most important tasks that we have is our children. They come first. It's true that God has mysteries. Uh, years ago, I don't know, it was around 2000, 2001, 2002, we had seven guys who we were looking at some issues together, talking about how to teach. And one of the things I emphasize to them is you have to preach the text you're in. You can't always square it up with everything else. We try to do that. Because sometimes there are statements made that just, we don't understand them. And God says, Moses says, that secret things belong to God, but what he has revealed belongs to us and our sons after us. When it comes to this wide issue of rearing children, there have been a lot of statements made that have sent people in a lot of wrong directions, and it's simply because we do not take the Lord for what he says. And so I just want to run through. This is, uh, this is the last message on child discipline. You're probably saying, great, it's about time. And so I'm going to run through some things really quickly, just kind of summarizing what we said and come to a conclusion. And next Sunday is October 30th. The 31st is the celebration of Reformation Day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the, door, the Wittenberg door. And it sent us into a new era. So I'm going to do a message on the Reformation and children. God has robed parents with his authority. Remember that uh, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, here's what it says. Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron to be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let Israel go from his country. This is the role of parents. We could substitute in it. Parents, I have made you as God to your children. God expects you to hear him from his word, and he expects all of us parents then to deliver his word to our children. And he expects all of us parents to deliver the rod of discipline to our children. We are responsible. Well, we know that from the great Shema and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following where we're told that Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it goes on to 
tell us that we are to teach our children. All this commandment I'm giving you today, this commandment stretches out this far because he's talking about Deuteronomy. 34 chapters. We're to teach it to our children. They're to know those commandments. Okay, so now we come down, we live in New Testament times, and we're under the New Covenant. But the New Covenant that is written on our hearts and put in our mind is, I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. It's given to Judah and Israel. The covenant, in terms of commandments, has not changed all that much. It certainly has changed some, and some of what we call the ceremonial law we're not responsible for. But what all is in Deuteronomy, almost all of it, we are responsible for. This is what we teach our kids. Parents, God has made us God to our children. To teach them about Him, put His kingdom first, and help them grow from little itty-bitty things all the way out to where they walk out the door. That is our responsibility. And God will hold us accountable for what we do. So, first point. Parents, we're robed with the authority of God to teach our children. This teaching, this correction, this discipline uh, starts with the littlest and goes to the biggest in our house. And, of course, it has a progression over time. We start with strict law. And we end up, as they grow older, backing off, backing off, where they have more and more responsibility because our teaching and our discipline has paid off. And we can, we can be different than the psychology of the world. Our teenagers do not need to be rebellious if... Strict law over here at the beginning and then backing off as they grow responsible. Christian families should be totally different than pagan families. And as parents, we are supplying the food of their life, the nurture, from the paddlings all the way to the joy of seeing them get married. We're supplying that. God put us in that role and he expects us to reap the fruit of our labor. That is, over here, you know, seems like you go things over and over and it feels like it'll never end. And one day, if you're faithful, you come down to this end and you just, wow, look what God has done. And how did he do it? He did it by grace through parents that he made as God to their children. Over here we have a nation right now who thinks at a five years old you can decide. No matter what your reproductive organs at five years old you can decide if you're male or female. No, kids can't decide. Proverbs tells us foolishness is bound up in the heart of children. The rod of discipline drives it from them. They are not to think by themselves at five years old. They are to think the way we tell them to think, to teach them to think. But when they're 16, 17, of course, by that time, they should have learned the way to think, and they should be thinking that way. But our culture is turning everything on its head, and pretty soon, parents will be being taught by their kids. 
Well, it's already happening. Okay, we've said all of that in a different way. Next thing I want to talk about is uh, parental child training takes skill. And uh, I'm just going to go through th some things that tell us that we may not be skilled enough at what we're doing. So let me read the whole line again. Parental child training skills needs improvement when your children, number one, are routinely disobedient. Remember, the rod of discipline drives folly away. Folly promotes disobedience. If you're not gaining ground, well, you need to grow in your skills. When your children are disrespectful to you. Now, you know, that comes with a snide comment. It comes with ignoring parents, acting like they didn't hear. It comes with the roll of the eyeballs. I was thinking about that. You know, my dead eyes can't do much, but I can roll my eyeballs. In fact, my kids watch me on Sunday to see when I've rolled my eyeballs. I think I'll wear shades from now on, <laughs> since I told you that. So, kids have to be taught to respect from the youngest age so that when they turn into teenagers, they have respect for authority, and where they should have respect. When your children are whining and complaining. Complaining is what Israel got in trouble for. Lots of people died because they complained in the wilderness. It was a severe discipline. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that God is at work in us to, do, to will and to do for his good pleasure. Then verse 14 goes on and says, Do all things without murmuring and complaining. When our children whine and complain, they are sinning. When we complain, and of course, we adults have the problem too. When we complain, we are demonstrating our Romans 1 unthankfulness to God. We're, we're ingrates. We're not full of gratitude. If your children whine and you tell them to stop and the whining goes on and you tell them to stop again and the whining goes on, you need to change what you're up to. When your children are lazy. One of the things that you find in Proverbs is that a lazy son who is not ready in harvest but sleeps brings shame to his father and his mother. 
Christian kids need to be industrious, according to Proverbs. Christian kids need not be lazy. We need to grow in our skills on training children when our kids are miserable because they sense they're not loved. Well, that happens in two different ways. Number one, if we don't discipline our children, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 13, 24, that they aren't loved. Instead, they're hated, and they know it. And then it comes another way, and that is when they're disciplined in anger, they know they're not loved, but they're hated. We need to change our strategy. Our uh, parental skills and discipline need to grow when we are making excuses for our children. In other words, we live in our home and not many people see much of what's going on at home, but when we go out, our children display our parental skill and discipline. They show it off, don't they? And uh, when they embarrass us in front of people, we may have a tendency to make excuses instead of accepting the fact, whoops, I haven't been doing my job very well. Our parental skills need to grow when we are frustrated and exasperated. This, is, this goes all the way back, doesn't it, to creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. And so male and female put together to have children. When children are birthed, they don't have much knowledge, they don't have much skill. But they're going to keep growing, and one day they're going to leave. And the question is, are they going to leave for the kingdom's sake with knowledge and skill and good behavior? This is the number one priority of parents. Here it is. I, I finally found it. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not despise the teaching of your mother. How do kids learn? Well, it's true. They go off to college and they learn all kinds of stuff we can't teach them. But when it comes to the fundamentals of life and thinking and kingdom and subduing the earth, we are the ones who have to teach them. No one else out there in the world is going to teach them that. It's up to us. Okay, next thing I want to talk about, which we've talked about some of this. Just want to run through them. I want to talk about principles of child rearing, child discipline. So there's a method where you actually do an application, but then there are truths behind what you're doing, principles behind what you're doing. And we talked about some of this. Child training has to be with faith or with confidence. That is, do we believe what Proverbs says? Bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far. Do we believe that? What stands behind parental discipline, godly, biblical parental discipline, is God's Word. You know, and I have reminded us, and I think it's true. We struggle at prayer because we simply don't really believe prayer does anything. We can read about it, but do we believe it? If we believed it, we would pray a whole lot more. If we believe what the Bible says about training children, we would devote ourselves to be good parents disciplining our children. Two, a principle that lies behind child discipline is love. Proverbs 13.24, the one withholds discipline from his child doesn't love him. He hates him. And Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 that are quoted in Hebrews chapter 5, the one the father loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. So in our families, there has to be an atmosphere of love. And that love says, you know, I care about... My son, right down here at two years old, I care enough to do something I really don't like to do because one day he's going to be 20 years old. And if I don't discipline him now, when he gets into his teens, I won't be able to do anything about it. It's the progress of discipline, isn't it? And so if I, if, you know, if my son or my daughter bothers me, they upset what I'm doing by their misbehavior, and I become angry and I discipline them, I'm showing, I don't care what I'm doing for you, I care that you've interrupted me so that I have to take care of you. No, the house has to be a place filled with an atmosphere of love. Discipline takes place by parents who really care about Kids loving God, loving the kingdom, and realizing, I am God to my children. Well, you understand what I'm saying, right? That principle lies behind discipline. It has to be done in an atmosphere of love with parents who are in control of themselves. You know, we read through Proverbs if you, if you follow the preferred reading plan once a month. And what I keep trying to do is I keep trying to, to uh, grab more and more Proverbs that I know. And so I'll say, okay, what Proverbs... The reading, you know, one day will be, okay, it's going to be Proverbs saying, okay, Craig, tell me, talking to myself, tell me what Proverbs can you tell yourself from chapter 10, from chapter 11? Because you notice the Proverbs are just all about life. And one of the most repetitious refrains in the aphorisms of Solomon's writing is a problem with anger. 
without control of one's emotions, which means then God expects us to be able to control our emotions. Okay? Number three. I don't know exactly how to say this one. Uh, but when we discipline our children, we are disciplining as a judge. That is, we're just taking the law of God, it might even be the law of the house, and we are doing what a judge does. We're exacting correction. Our emotions don't need to be involved. Number four, behind uh, discipline comes what is effective. Wounds that go deep scour away evil. Now, I don't think you're supposed to cut your kids. I don't think that. But what we did say, and any good book on child discipline that you pick up will say is, if you want to be effective, your discipline has to be painful. And we saw that in Hebrews 12, when God disciplines us. All discipline for the moment seems painful. But of course, it's that pain that urges the change. So if the discipline is just a nice little swap on the behind, and it doesn't sting, it doesn't hurt, and it doesn't cause tears, and it is not helpful. Discipline must be painful. Next, discipline must be effective. This is where we have our problem. So, we take a child who is smarter than we are. And the child, oh, where? Maybe six months, maybe even a little before that. The child is learned some behavior, and the child learns if he whines enough, mom and dad will give in to him to shut him up. Now, of course, what we're letting the child do, and he knows exactly what he's doing, we're letting him sin instead of teaching him with painful discipline, this is a consequence for sin. When they're little, the consequence, you know, goes away in a few minutes. When they're older and they sin, the consequences can be catastrophic, and the parent can't change them. So our discipline has to be effective. So... I have to teach my child, okay, if you disobey, when I say stop, you stop now. I'm not going to count. I'm not going to say it five times. Now. And if you don't, everybody said, Now, if we were consistent at that, you can train children at a very young age not to whine. 
also, discipline has to be effective. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, how long it takes. For some children, it may take longer. But if you're consistent, if you don't play games, if you're willing to be interfered with by a disobedient child who needs your love right then, then you can take care of that problem. And uh, just let me pause and say, Proverbs is not written to a fallen world. It's written to Israel. It's written to believers. These promises are not for a fallen world. These promises are for believers. So, a lost person may benefit his child by spanking, but a lost person is not going to drive his child to Christ by a spanking. We are. And that's what Proverbs is telling us. This gives life, not just physical life, this is, oh, you're God to your children. Who's going to bring them to really know God, who God is, what he's like, what he does, how holy he is? Well, you're going to show them by the way they live, by the way you teach, and by the way you discipline. And so you're going to show, I'm going to be effective in this. Discipline must be consistent so that when a child sins, he gets the correction needed each time and not something different. Discipline needs to be applied along biblical standards. Now, uh, what I mean by this is if, if, you take, if you take the Bible... We should all agree in everything in the Bible, right? But we don't. But, but that's fine. We agree that there is a, a standard in the Bible. And you would discipline your kids because it says don't lie. If they lie, you're going to discipline them. If your kid grumbles, you're going to discipline them. If your kid, it says put away anger. If your kid gets angry, you're going to discipline them. How are they going to learn the cost of anger? Read through Proverbs. Read about anger and see what the cost is. No, discipline them. So, they steal, we're going to discipline. They mouth off, we're going to discipline. They disrespect, we're going to discipline. But then there are standards that are not the same in every household, and you have to teach your children that too. Okay, here's God's standards. And this is what we will discipline by. But over here we have some house standards. So, you know, if your kid comes over to my house and uh, jumps up and down on my couch, that might be a rule at my house. You don't, you don't do that. But at your house, it may be your trampoline. I don't know that. So you have to teach kids that house rules at each house are different. Which reminds us then, in the Bible, parents, we must teach what is true, not what we want it to say. So Romans 14 is full of sometimes what we call gray areas. They're not really gray. But if I decide to be a vegetarian, that's just fine. And to stay kosher as a Jew, uh, not to eat 
things strangled and so forth, I may decide back in Paul's day to just be a vegetarian. So in my house, I say, okay, we're going to be vegetarian. But, you know, at the Fossilino house, man, they are carnivores. <laughs> we have to teach our kids this. So there's got to be a kind of distinction between God's rules that always demand discipline, our rules that in this house, you will, these are the house rules, so we operate together. But when you go to somebody else's house, the rules may be different. And so, I don't know, you ever thought about Jeremiah chapter, I think it's 35, the Rechabites, where there was going to be no wine. Was that a biblical rule? Of course not. But it was a house rule, and that house rule, for some reason, extended into generations of the Rechabites. Quite something. Obviously, a very respected parent there. Okay, then I wrote it this way, just when to discipline. And uh, I'm just going to read them. I think we all know these. I've, I've already said most of them anyway. Okay, we discipline for straight-up disobedience. Come to the table, we're going to eat. They don't show up. Discipline. We're going to discipline for lying. It's one of the big problems that people have to shade the truth, to deceive we're going to discipline for grumbling. We're going to discipline for disrespect. We're going to discipline for pride. Well, I used to be one of those who, you know, didn't do a lot of thinking and thought, you know, it's... It's just really easy to get anger, and you can't, you can't control that. So what are you saying? We're supposed to discipline over a display of emotions? And the answer is yes. It's everywhere in the Bible. But it says at the end of Ephesians, chapter 4, that we are to put away all bitter and anger, and wrath, and clamor, and slander, and malice, and instead to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. I was not disciplined as a... I, I grew up in a Christian family, but I was not disciplined for displays of emotion that were negative and improper. I wish I would have been. Now, of course, discipline, when we talk about discipline, I need to remind us, and I'm sure you all know this, that discipline comes in two forms. There's corrective discipline, which we read about in the case of David, uh, and, and there's and there's positive discipline. It's not the right term. I don't know how to put it. But it's, it's like an athlete who's honing his body for his particular sport. 
He disciplines his body, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. So his body is honed, capable. And so he's putting himself through things that one would not really like to do. And they're hard, and they take effort, and you'd rather go sit down and eat a hamburger. But this is what we have to put our children through. They do not learn to work hard unless we help them work hard and we give them tasks so that they're growing in maturity that life is not a free ride. This is what we have to do. This is when we discipline. Now, of course, that kind of discipline does not come with a rod unless the child doesn't apply himself to the the endurance discipline. All right. Now, I, uh, I took something that, when I talked about this a few years back, I read, I don't know, six or seven statements that came from a talk I heard from Douglas Wilson. Oh, I've done some more reading. I think they actually came from Douglas Wilson's father. And he put them in his book or somewhere I saw them. Now, I've changed them a little bit. And I've called this section, What is Obedience? Well, first of all, obedience is immediate. When we ask our child to do something, then we should expect them to act promptly, which is what Proverbs 13, 24 says. We discipline diligently, or it could be disciplined promptly, and we expect our children to listen to us. So here's the one I've heard repeatedly. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We expect our children to answer us cheerfully. Uh, would you take the garbage out? Grumpy obedience is disobedience. We expect our children to have an exacting obedience. That is, we expect them to do exactly what we told them to do. Redefined obedience is disobedience. Now, of course, you see that in the case of Saul, who was to conquer and kill all the animals and all the people. But when Samuel showed up, oh, he had an answer for why the king was still alive and some of the animals were alive. Oh, yeah, I obeyed. No, he redefined what obedience was. We expect our children to do what we say. And when they obfuscate, we must discipline. Responsive obedience. Again, I didn't know quite how to say this. But we had a child in our house. We don't have any children in our house now. And you know what? It's okay. I kind of like it. I do like it when the grandchildren come, 
a lot. I do like it when the grandchildren go home. But responsive obedience is, we had a child, you tell this child what to do, and the child would go away and didn't do it right away, and then forgot. Forgetful obedience is disobedience. Complete obedience, that is, I already said this in another fashion, we, we don't want partial obedience to what we ask. We want them to completely obey and respectful obedience, and in which case disrespectful obedience is, I mean, obedience is disobedience. So if we ask them to do something and they do it, but you can tell by their attitude or what they say that they're not in agreement with you and they... Uh, impugn your authority? No, that's disobedience. And of course, as we apply ourselves when they're young, little, with the rod of correction, the rod with which we strike them, they won't die. The rod that will deliver their soul from, well, the word in Hebrew, Proverbs 23, verse 14, is sheol. People translate it differently. I believe the King James translates it hell. It can mean the grave. It is the place of the dead. It's the place where unrighteous dead went in the Old Testament and the righteous dead went. But the sense is, the sense we would take it in would be hell. So we want to use that rod to deliver our children from hell. All right, we have five minutes left, actually three. When it comes down to applying discipline, I'm, I'm hopeful everybody in the room is in agreement. And this is just taken from just the whole subject. You think about it. You cannot find a verse that says, do this, do it this way. But when a child disobeys and you are going to apply correction to the two cheeks, the child has to know why. So you tell them, here is the infraction. Here's where you sinned. Then when the infraction is known, and the crying already begins because one knows what's coming, then you, like Proverbs 13, 24 says, discipline promptly. You apply prompt discipline and painful discipline so that, well, the way I've said it before is a child needs to be dancing from pain. That's a biblical form of dancing, you know. So, you know, you, you, have to, you have to make sure 
you are doing things in a proper manner so that the kid feels the pain and responds with tears that hopefully, effectively, will bring him to repentance. When the spanking correction, uh, I hear we use the word correction, spanking's not politically correct, I don't think. Correction with the rod, when it takes place, then what we want is we want our kids to want back into our fellowship. We've hurt them. Intentionally, we've hurt them because of their sin. And one of two things can happen. They can withdraw in anger, or they can be in a family that cares enough, loves enough, that they want to be back with dad or mom just like that. And we help them get there. And the way we help them get there is, first of all, we didn't do things in anger. We did things because we love. And we want them to respond in repentance. And when they reach for us, we pray with them because God forgives them. And we extend our forgiveness to them and we open fellowship with them in terms of a hug so that they may have trouble shutting the tears off. But the family sense is reestablished. Now, like I said, there's there's hardly anything more important and one has to realize that when we do this we are building the kingdom be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it rule over it and we start with our kids and we're building the kingdom and we're gonna shove them out the other end because they've been trained as kingdom citizens and they're going to go out and do the same thing and then their kids are going to go out and do the same thing and pretty soon the whole earth is filling up with generations of kingdom people let's stand Father, we thank you that you love us and uh, you discipline every son you receive and you scourge us. Some forms of discipline are temporary that yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness when we submit to it. Some forms of discipline out of your love are not temporary, they last a lifetime but they too produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness when we yield to what you're doing. And Lord, all over this room, we have little ones and we have parents. And we want parents, all of us want to be parents that love our children and uh, that we do the thing that we most don't want to do 
That is, strike our children out of love to change their behavior and bring them from unrighteousness into sweet righteousness, that wonderful fruit that you build in our lives. And Lord, we recognize that your word builds us up when we read it and we transmit that word to our children so it builds them up. But you have other methods, you have other means too. And it is the ministry of the rod of correction that helps us grow in Christ. I pray for all of us that our households would gain a new atmosphere of renewed love and that our households would gain a renewed uh, diligence to train our children in the nurture and the instruction of Christ. And I pray that we would be faithful to what we read and see in the text, recognizing that we can't answer every question. We see what Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up in a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And we see that it doesn't always happen that way. And yet the secret things belong to you. And we're called to respond to your word, the thing we can see and know what you've revealed. So help us to be people who look, believe, and act, and then anticipate the wonderful fruit that you will bring in our lives, in our children's lives, that we might be a church and families that are pleasing in your sight, a bright lampstand to a lost world of what it's like to serve the true and only God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.